How many of you, when you were a kid, number one, how many of you remember being a child? I know that stimulates some of our thinking. How many of you, when you were a kid, pretended to be somebody you weren't? For us little boys, we all wanted to be what? Firemen or cowboys or police officers or something along that line. Little girls dressed up and tried to pretend to be somebody, played house. It's always fascinating. I have still those pictures in my mind of watching my girls dress up in adult clothes, wondering what are they going to be like when they actually grow into them? And what is it going to be like for them? I'm glad you're sitting down, but I need to share this with you. And that is, I've not always been as sophisticated as I am today. Now, I know that's a surprise to some of you because you think I've been sophisticated all of my life, but I'm a country boy. And I grew up on a dairy farm, and I'm telling you, it was the roughest existence you can imagine. We work from dawn till dusk. Every morning at 5.15, between 5.15 and 5.30, my dad flicked on the light in our bedroom. And by the second flick on light, you better be up. And by the third one, you better be downstairs. And before he even mentions your name, you better be dressed out the door and ready to milk cattle. We did that for a long period of time, which is why I don't do that anymore. Do you think there's any other reason that I am not a farmer today? Dad worked us hard. But he did every once in a while allow us to play. And when we played, we played hard. We imagined more things than any young child should probably imagine because we had so much imagination and so many places to do it. We had the best fort in the world. We could stand off anybody who came our way behind that fort. Still remember my first Christmas getting that BB gun. And lever action, man, was just the way to go. You could shoot anybody coming at you, and you could keep them at bay all day long. My dad did custom work, which is he had the combine, and he would go to other farms who didn't have one, and he would put in their crops every once in a while. And every so often, he would invite us to go along just to watch or enjoy the experience. One time he did that, went to a neighbor's farm, and on that farm was an abandoned home. We said to him, what do you think they're going to do with that old house? He said, I think they're going to tear it down. My brother and I thought, perfect. We're going over and we're going to play in this old house. Now, as you're playing in an old house, you know as a child with a vivid imagination, the Indians are coming, right? So what's every good cowboy do when the Indians come? Takes the butt of his gun, breaks out the window, and shoots them all down. I've never understood in watching all those old movies why they didn't just lift the window up and shoot out. You ever wonder that? I got to believe they all opened up or lifted up. Why does every cowboy have to bust the window out, then start to shoot? So we did. Upstairs and downstairs, every single window in the house. And there wasn't an Indian alive when we were done. Dad came over devastated with what these two young boys did with their vivid imagination, pretending to be who we weren't, and asked us what we were thinking. I said, you said he was going to tear the house down. Yes, but they were going to save the windows, all of them. So for the rest of that entire summer, my brother and I worked for free for my dad and my neighbor to pay off what we had done. At that point, it wasn't as fun pretending as it was before he found out. This morning, I want to go to Acts chapter 5. We're going to talk about a couple who pretended to be something they weren't. Pretended to be a little more spiritual than they were, just trying to look like everyone else. And God judged it in a pretty severe and noticeable way. We're going to be in Acts chapter 5 this morning, and If you're new to us, we have been in a series for the last number of years. I've 
taken different books of the Bible and gone all the way through them. And for a while now, we've been in the book of Acts, and obviously because of where we are, we're going to be there for a while to come. I love expository preaching. There are a lot of things in Scripture that some pastors would ignore, some things that they share and talk about that are their personal ones, their favorite stories or their favorite books of the Bible. So that's the ones they tend to gravitate to. When you do expository preaching going all the way through a book, you can't do that. You've got to walk all the way through it. There are some sections that you would probably ignore. This may be one of those. Because of the style that I've chosen the last number of years, it's one of those you can't bypass and really one of those you shouldn't. Because so in the midst of all the uncertainty and difficulty of the moment, some really powerful lessons that I think God wants to teach us. We're in Acts chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. I'll go back into context in a moment. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back some of the money for himself. He brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now in Acts chapter 4, a lot of them had done that. They had been blessed by God in unbelievable ways, and God's Spirit landed on all of them. And when the fullness of God's Spirit lands on them, one of the things He does is release my hold on possessions, or sometimes release the hold possessions have on me. So at the end of chapter 4, anybody who had some extra money or extra resources or extra land sold it. And they brought it and placed it at the apostles' feet. A lot of them had been doing that, and Ananias and Sapphira had seen that thought it was a pretty good deal. Everybody seemed to like that or maybe elevate them. You got to wonder what people said when that happened. And so there was something inside of them that says, man, we love the accolades they got for that. We want to do that as well. And so they did. And they brought it and placed it at the apostles' feet. When that happened in verse 3, Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You'd not lie just against human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all those who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me, is the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? She said, yes, it is. That's the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they're going to carry you out as well. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. And the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. i got to believe this is one of the most understated verses in the New Testament. Great fear seized the whole church, you think? And all who heard about these events. Now, again, as I said a moment ago, this is probably one of those stories, if you picked and choose through Scripture that you would want to share about, you'd probably pass over. A little hard, a little difficult, doesn't always happen. You don't see many people falling dead in churches because they kept back some things. And so why this one? I think there's some really powerful things that God wants to teach us, and I want to share those with you this morning. I said a moment ago, to get the full story, you got to back to chapter 4 and understand how that when God landed on them, they let go of some things. It wasn't that near and dear to them. They could let go of what they sensed God wanting them to do, and they were free to the grip that possessions had on them. In verse 36 of chapter 4, you meet a man named Barnabas who really understood these principles. In this case, he was known for his giving. 
going to be later called the son of encouragement that you'll see here coming out in chapter 4 as he took on a young convert by the name of Paul. Here he comes and he gives freely, sacrificially, and joyfully. Now, when it comes to giving, we all have different things that run through our minds. Some of you may have grown up in a church that all they talked about was giving. And after a while, it leaves kind of a bad taste in your mouth. And there are a lot of churches that are known for that. One of the things that visitors will say, especially of all days you come today, see, honey, I told you, all they ever talk about in church is money. And there are a lot of times that that's true. Through the years, I've gone through all of my files just to see how many times that I've done that and found about 10 or 12 sermons on giving over the last 19 years. And so obviously we haven't talked a lot about it, but many churches do. Some come from backgrounds where you feel manipulated into giving. You feel guilted into doing it with sad stories and starving children. Or maybe you hear those enticing things says, if you give to God, he'll give you back a hundredfold. God will bless you. You just plant a seed and God will multiply it over and over again. We hear those kinds of stories on TV and radio all the time. And when that does, we kind of wonder, what does God say about giving? Well, to be honest with you, if you walk through the Scripture, you'll find it really Spirit-directed. One of the evidences of being Spirit-filled is displayed in our attitude toward giving because God knows it's one of the hardest things for us to let go of. And so I find it fascinating of all the things that God could have pointed out in this particular context of preserving this story, it had to do with giving and my thought behind that is it's one of the hardest things for us to release. Barnabas, in this case, gives. When the Spirit of God landed on his people, Barnabas, being a part of that group, found himself in a place where he just simply wanted to respond to that. And so when the Spirit of God talked to him and said to him what to do, he did. No coercion, no guilt, no pressure from the outside. His giving came as a result of what was going on on the inside. The Spirit told him what to give. There was no amount that was required, no percentage that was specified. He gave freely from a heart of gratitude. I've often wondered what happened in chapter 4. What was the response of the people in chapter 4 when this was taking place to cause Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5 to want to do what they did? And that's why I still come to the conclusion that there must have been some kind of celebration when people did that. And so when Ananias and Sapphira saw that, they thought, we want to look as good as them. There's every indication that they even gave more money than they did. What's fascinating is God's response to all of that. Because they did it now, not under the control of the Spirit of God that everybody else in chapter 4 did. They did it to pretend so that they could look good and as generous as everyone else. They had a track of land just like Barnabas did. They sold it and came and presented it to the apostles as if it was all the proceeds of the property. Peter discerned that and confronted their lie. Notice it wasn't the amount that he was confronting. Look back at the text again. It obviously indicates that Ananias and Sapphira could do whatever they wanted with the money. They could give any amount they wanted. Peter seemed to say to them, there's no specific amount. There was no pressure to give, so why lie? Why to pretend to be something you're not? And in their case, it cost them their lives. Now, I've heard other pastors use this text as a Way of beating people down, saying, see, if you don't give, God's going to get you. He may not kill you, but he's going to get you. He doesn't. It's not what this text teaches us at all. It wasn't what they gave. The amount was irrelevant. It was their pretending that God nailed. 
Their desire to look like they were being spirit-filled when they weren't. The issue was never the money, it was the motive. It's always been the motive. Because giving has always been an issue of the heart. You see, if we measure spirituality by external performance, we're in trouble, especially if those kind of people end up in leadership. There are a lot of churches that we've known down through the ages that have done that. People really well-off or well-to-do or seem to be really savvy in a business world, so they must be good in this context. And we sometimes judge based on externals when God says, no, it's about the heart. Matter of fact, you'll notice all the way through the book of Acts, one of the first qualifying principles of leadership was the fact that they were filled with the Spirit. didn't talk about their job or what they did before they came into the kingdom or any of those kind of things. It said we want to look for men and women filled with the Spirit of God because we know when they're filled with the Spirit of God, they'll do everything with a pure motive, not to look good so that others see that. It's always been a matter of the heart. I believe down through the ages, God has always been saying, look, what I want is who you are on the inside. If what you do, your money, our service, our worship, doesn't come from the inside out, then it's not as meaningful. Matter of fact, I'm not even interested in it. Said Jeremiah 29, look, you're honoring me with your lips. You're saying the right things, but you're not inside connected to me at all. I mean, your sermon knows the Christian life is to be a manifestation of the internal work of the Spirit from which behavior flows. So often we see people getting it backwards. Think if I just manifest the behavior, if I go to church, give my money, teach a class, maybe then I'll feel and look spiritual. Jesus confronted that over and over again in the New Testament. In Matthew 3, he looked at the Pharisees and said, Look, you guys seem to be so good on the outside, but your insides are filthy. How many stories have you read about pastors and leaders and church affiliates and people who have been in really prominent places who speak well and give incredible sermons and know the Bible inside and out but have filthy habits that are carried out in private? In Matthew 6, Jesus confronted them for their appearance. They were offering long prayers in public forums so that everyone could hear how powerful they prayed. I'm often fascinated when I see the difference between people praying in public and praying in private. Their voice changes. Do you ever notice that? Sometimes their voice gets deeper or they get louder as if God's deaf. Or their voice changes in some way or the other and as opposed to a personal expression of my heart for God. Jesus said, look, you guys are doing it for show. You're praying in public so everyone hears it. You're praying long, drawn-out prayers. You're doing it, no one notices, thinking that everyone notices, but God sees your heart. You're giving lots of money, but you're doing it in an effort to look spiritual. God says, what I want is your heart, because everything else flows from that. In sermon notes, I have a, just a couple of examples, one from the beginning of time in Cain and Abel's situation in Genesis chapter 4. You know the story, and you have to go back and read it because I don't have the time this morning to expound it, but Cain's sacrifice wasn't accepted, and so often we heard, well, because it wasn't a blood, blood sacrifice, and I don't think that was honestly the truth. I think it was because it didn't come from the heart. No stipulations were made. It was a free will from the heart, offering that they were to give. Cain was only doing it to look as good as Abel. In Genesis chapter 12, Abraham, who had been obviously blessed by God, finds himself coming back from a battle at one point. He comes in contact with a high priest named Melchizedek. 
And he offers him a tenth of everything he had. Why? Because everybody was supposed to give 10%. There was never up to that point any specific amount required. But to the Hebrew mind, a tenth was a representation of the whole. And essentially, he was saying, God, I know everything I have has been from you. And I want to give back to you, not because I'm supposed to or I have to, because I want to. Y'all remember growing up in church, saying, I have to go to church, as opposed to I really want to go to church. And I'm sure you remember back when I heard Justin talk about those different times in your life when you walk back. I walked in my mind immediately to two or three different places. Remember at age 12, bowing beside my mom and dad's bed and accepting Christ as my Savior. And you remember those times when all of a sudden it transitioned from I have to go to church to I can't wait to go to church? God looks for who I am on the inside. Abraham said, God, I know everything I have has come from you. I don't want to offer this back. Not because I'm supposed to or I have to. I want to give it. Now, there were a number of ties in the Old Testament. I have some of them in your sermon notes this morning. Matter of fact, by the end of adding them all up to run a theocracy, which is what they were doing in that context, as finding it similar to a democracy, they ended up giving almost 30%. In that context, that's why God says to them in Malachi chapter 3, pay what you are obligated to pay. Jesus said the same thing. If you have taxes that you ought to pay, pay them. But what you also notice in the New Testament, as in the Old, is free will giving. An offering from the heart, directed by the Spirit, given freely. In Numbers 18, the first fruits giving, uh, where I brought my best to God as a sign of my love and devotion. Exodus 25, and I had the verse in there for you because it's fascinating. When Moses was raising money for a building, he said, Tell the Israelites to bring from each man whose heart prompts him to give. Not what you have to sell, not what you should do, what you're obligated to do, but what you should do. And when it's all said and done in that context there, I love it when Moses said, okay, we're done. We got enough. You don't have to bring any more. You don't have to bring any extra. What you'll notice in your sermon this morning, it's never about the money. It's always about the heart. Free will from the heart, spirit-directed giving is characterized by a number of things. I just have a few of them in your notes this morning. One is love and devotion, not guilt and fear. If you know anything about the New Testament, one of the most familiar stories is a little man named Zacchaeus who wanted to see Jesus but couldn't see him just because of the context of the crowd. And so he climbed up in a... See, y'all went to Bible school. Climbed up in a sycamore tree to see what? He could see. Jesus walked by and said, I want to spend the night in your house. And so he came down, I want to have dinner with you. And so he did. When the dinner was over... Zacchaeus said, look, I, I've, I've been wrong. You've changed my life, and I want to give back. No amount. He said, I want to give four times what I've taken. There's no amount. It was never about that. It was never by coercion or any of those things. It was just simply from the heart. It's not about even the amount. Matt, Mark 12, fascinating story that I'm sure we're all familiar with. During those three years of ministry with the disciples, Jesus took them everywhere he went, trying to teach them a variety of lessons. One of the most intriguing was in this context in Mark chapter 12 when they're standing there one day watching the offering plate go by. He often wondered how often he looked at the disciples to see their intrigue and to see how they responded to watching what people dropped in. Not that any of us would ever do that, but I got to believe that in some context it was unique for them. And so they watched it. All of a sudden a lady came with a mite, a 
thing that's worth about a half a penny or a little bit more than that. And she dropped it in and Jesus said, look, guys, you see what she did? And almost as if in there saying, yeah, who cares? He said, I want you to know she gave more than the rest. Now, they had a calculator in her head, does every accountant would, thinking that's impossible. He said, it's never about the amount. It's always about the motivation. It's always about the heart. You see, it's not a matter, number three, of how much I have. It's what I do with what I have. I've heard so many people say down through the ages, man, when I get blessed, am I going to be able to bless? When God finally blesses me with a great job and a great income, I can't wait to give it away. And what I have found down through the ages, isn't that always isn't true. I've been incredibly blessed with some amazing parents. And over the 4th of July, we spent some time together. I had the opportunity to get down early. Going on 86 and 83, so I don't know how many more years I'll have to do that. And Christics always gather together at the 4th of July and picnics. And we had a blast. I mean, literally. I had more guns in the back of that in a small army. And I just kept, I obeyed every single law on the way down because there was no way I was going to get pulled over because there's no way I could explain <laughs> all the stuff in the back of my truck. I was sitting with my mom and dad, and I began to rehearse in my mind how unbelievably generous my parents were. They were dirt poor farmers. But my dad was one of the most generous men I've ever met in all of my life. He would give in ways that no one really could care about, that not a lot of people recognized and understood. But, man, I just watched him give and give and give and give. Some of you may know and may have heard that now on his farm are some wells. And they've been blessed. What was intriguing about that is when Dad said to me on Thursday, when it was just the three of us sitting at the table, he said, you have any idea how much fun it is to give this money away? I said, Dad, I've been watching you to do it all your life. He said, I've had more fun blessing ministries and people in these last two years and I listened to him share how enjoyable it was to give it away. But it was based on the history of a man who had done that all of his life. Luke says he has been faithful with a little, and my dad's an example of that. Can be trusted with a lot. Fourth thing is it's a kingdom perspective, a kingdom desire. That's why Jesus said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. You've heard it said before that one of the most lucrative businesses you can have is storage units. Do you not find that intriguing? To store stuff that we just want to make sure we know where it's at in case we ever need it. I just find that, and I, I don't have one. I've got safes and, you know, those kind of things. But it always intrigues me. And Jesus said, look, you guys are investing in wrong stuff. You're putting your money in those things and all of that stuff that moths and thieves will take and might as well destroy. He said, I want you to be a wise investor. Look for things that have a kingdom yield. Now, I'm not talking about seed planning or prosperity theology. I really don't buy that stuff. Teaching to get something back. Jesus just simply says, look, think about what you do with what you have and the value of what you're going to invest in before you invest. It's marked by a personal decision, not external pre uh, pressure or manipulation. Paul talks a lot about it in 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians. 
making sure that we clearly understand it's not about an amount, it's not about pressure, coercion, or manipulation. It's about what the Spirit of God is telling me to do with what I've been entrusted with. The problem with Ananias and Sapphira was never the money. It was always a heart issue. They weren't under any obligation to give any specific amount. The problem was their motive behind their giving. They're pretending to be spirit-led when they weren't. And that's what Peter confronted. And in this case, it cost them their lives. Now, the impact, obviously, had a lot of fear among the audience, and I'm sure it would. I believe the fear went beyond that. I believe these people realize that if you're going to hang around people where the power of God is on display, you better not pretend. Because the most dangerous person to pretend in front of is God. God is at work in amazing ways in this early on fire, moving with a spirit group of believers. And when pretense and pretending begin to infiltrate from within, God says no and eliminates it. I find it fascinating that he didn't eliminate their suffering in chapter 4 or what Peter and John are going to face at the end of chapter 5 that we read about a few weeks ago. But in this particular context, when pretending and pretense and all of that begin to infiltrate, God says no. Reminds me, I think, to how precious the church is to God because it cost him his son's life and to do anything to protect it. I think this section of Scripture in your notes ought to also give us a, a holy fear of any ever pretending. Not talking about being afraid of God, but a healthy, holy respect and awareness of the fact that if there's anyone in life I want to be honest with, it's God. Because God sees right through me to the core in your sermon notes of who I am. This text teaches me that when you decide to pretend, it could cost you a lot. Maybe not your life, but definitely your spiritual life. And if enough of these kinds of people gather in the same church, the church dies. Ananias and Sapphira tried to imitate external behavior without the internal reality of Christ's spirit. And when we do that, we find out that what we do for God isn't nearly as important as why we do it. And what God looks for is our heart. Because what God sees is who we are on the inside. Response to that can be two things. Incredible fear or unbelievable freedom. The one person I don't have to hide in front of is God. Now, to some, that brings enormous fear. To those who are just honest about who they are, amazing freedom choice yours and mine let's pray father i thank you for your grace and for your word it is so honest it allows us to look inside and see who we are which is why james said it's like a mirror unless it's revealed less allows it to reveal the real us i thank you for your spirit and its ability to do that, to tell us what to do and how to respond and where to give our time, talents, and treasures. I trust that as a people of God at Community Alliance Church, we're really honest about who we are and what it is that you've called us to do. And we allow you to look deep inside. As David said, Father, look inside. Anything that doesn't please you, point it out. I want to deal with it. Help us to be that gut level honest with you. Amazing freedom that comes with that.
And we thank you for your word and for how alive it really still is. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I finished early this morning for a specific reason. And I want you to share with us just for a few moments. A number of weeks ago, as we began this series,